the overall umbrella uh, of really everything we do in the lab is to understand how the natural genetic diversity in chickens uh, impacts their response, especially to stressors. Uh, That might be an environmental stressor like heat or it might be uh, infectious uh, pathogens. Over the years, we have worked with a lot of food safety pathogens like salmonella or E. coli. Uh, More recently, uh, our focus has been on uh, the response of birds to Newcastle disease virus. You know, that's relatively well controlled in the U.S., although we still do have occasional outbreaks of the uh, exotic Newcastles. But globally, it's a huge problem in terms of poultry production because it's really not very well controlled on a global basis. So we are really trying to understand uh, what opportunities there are for uh, breeding, genetic selection of birds that would be naturally more resistant to this virus. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. I'm Dr. Liz Bobeck, and today I'm here with a great colleague and mentor of mine, Dr. Sue Lamont from Iowa State University. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here today. Yeah, you're definitely on my list of people I wanted to chat with. I always learn something new about everyone I interview, so really excited to have you today. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So to to start, we uh, usually kind of talk about how we get into poultry. So what what is your poultry story? Yeah, it's kind of a different one, I think, for people that uh, <laughs> have now made their career uh, in poultry. We had a few backyard chickens, but nothing major uh, when I was growing up. And in fact, my route into poultry was via the bi- biomedical field. Uh, as a graduate student, uh, I was at a medical center, the University of Illinois Medical Center, but chickens are an absolutely outstanding uh, model to understand immunology, to understand genetics, to understand developmental biology. So even though I was at a medical center, uh, my research was on the basic function of the chicken immune system. Uh, That led me uh, into my postdoc time uh, at the University of Massachusetts, Uh, where I uh, had a wonderful mentor, uh, Dr. J. Robert Smith, and his expertise was poultry genetics. And we worked there on an animal model, a chicken uh, model for a human disease. But again, my task was to work with the basic function of the chicken's immune system to understand, in this case, what was going wrong with immune function that caused the destruction of the uh, pigment cells uh, in the bird so that their brown feathers would actually turn white uh, based on destruction by the immune system. And after my postdoc, uh, I assumed the position here at Iowa State leading the genetics program. And as of August this year, I will be here 40 years. Uh, so that it, it, it has been my career. Uh, I have great colleagues, uh, yourself included, and that has really made this just a wonderful career location for me. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible path 
Can you uh, describe a little bit about what you're what you're doing currently? Kind of what your lab has been working on recently? Any fun and exciting research projects? Absolutely, I'd love to. Uh, the overall umbrella. Uh, of really everything we do in the lab is to understand how the natural genetic diversity in chickens uh, impacts their response, especially to stressors. Uh, That might be an environmental stressor like heat, or it might be uh, infectious uh, pathogens. Over the years, we have worked with a lot of food safety pathogens like salmonella or E. coli. Uh, More recently, Uh, Our focus has been on uh, the response of birds to Newcastle disease virus. You know, that's relatively well controlled in the U.S., although we still do have occasional outbreaks of the uh, exotic Newcastles. But globally, it's a huge problem in terms of poultry production because it's really not very well controlled on a global basis. So we are really trying to understand uh, what opportunities there are for uh, breeding, genetic selection of birds that would be naturally more resistant to this virus. Yeah. So, and in combination with that, I would say, you know, those are the topics, but what I love to bring into the work is the most contemporary genetic technologies that exist. And as you might guess, over 40 years, that has changed a lot. Uh, You know, our ability now to interrogate the genetics uh, of the birds and really get down to the level of understanding genes and their function is just so much better. Uh, You know, every, every year we get a breakthrough. Uh, chickens were the first of all the farm animals that had their genome sequenced, and that really gave us a, a jump start into understanding how genetics impacts important economic and biological traits in birds. So what have been some of your uh, favorite changes in technology that really you felt like kind of pushed your program forward? Yeah, uh, I think the biggest thing has been the ability to, uh, to just do everything now on a massive scale. Uh, when I started, you know, if we had an interest in one gene, we could look only at one gene at a time. What did it look like? What kind of variation was there? Uh, how might it change its expression after, say, exposure to bacteria? Now we can do that for all of the genes simultaneously. Uh, and we can look at their structural differences. We can look at how they're expressed differently in every tissue So really now, uh, one of the biggest challenges is the analysis of data that is that huge. Uh, So, you know, massive, massive data sets and the bioinformatics and the ability to appropriately statistically analyze that amount of data becomes a really important skill uh, for researchers in this area. Yeah. Yeah. The massive amount of data is uh, the next frontier. (laughs) Understanding and I think so. (laughs) Getting a story. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. We have, we have some of the same issues with microbiome data and you have to just look at it many times to really understand the patterns and then go back. That's right. That's right. Otherwise you just, you know, it's, it's like having a pile of bricks, you know, and what we really need to do is buy the, build the house uh, out of it, you know, take every one of those, understand where it belongs uh, and finally get something useful out of it. And that, in my view, is the biological interpretation uh, of all of those points of information that we collect. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the story and making sense of it is is the the part that AI won't take over from us ever. <laughs> I, I don't think it will. I'm hopefully it will not. Yeah. Humans will still have a very important role to play. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Sue, as part of your program, you, I should use the term, are the curator or, or the um, caretaker maybe of some really cool genetic lines. Maybe can you, can you talk about the history of those lines and how they've influenced some of the work that you've done, especially with these, you know, Newcastle and other viruses? Absolutely. And that uh, has been just a fantastic resource. Uh, I have to take the credit for overseeing them, curating them over the past 40 years. But I was fortunate in most cases to inherit those lines from very wise people that could see into the future that that had the poultry genetics faculty positions before me. The oldest of our lines here at Iowa State in the genetics program was starting to be inbred in 1925. 1925. So we're almost up to their centennial. 
I'm very excited about that. We'll need a really big party uh, when that, that line has been inbred for uh, 100 years because it's a very unusual thing to be able to inbreed lines of uh, uh, farm animals and still have them be viable over the long term. Uh, and I have to give credit to our fantastic uh, poultry farm crew uh, that, that takes really good care uh, of these animals. So we have, uh, to my knowledge, the oldest inbred line of chickens in the world. Uh, so that, that is called Line 8, a uh, very creative name it has there. Uh, and then we have other, other sets of lines that have a similar history, uh, or I should say they started about the same time, uh, and they were imported from different parts of the world. Uh, in one case, the, what we call the Fayumi line, which came from the, the Fayum region of Egypt originally, was brought to the U.S. because it had been described to be very resistant to what they called as avian leukosis at that time. Well, that was long enough ago that they really didn't know the difference between avian leukosis and Merrick's disease, uh, but they did understand that this line, because of its natural history of selection, uh, was quite resistant uh, to viral diseases. And that uh, Fayumi line has been a fantastic resource because that was correct. It is very resistant to many different types of pathogens. Uh, we have examined its response uh, to uh, bacteria, to viruses, to parasites. And in almost every instance, that bird comes out on the top in terms of resistance. So it's a fantastic uh, resource for us to understand what kind of genetic variation exists that gives it those properties of resistance. Now, early on, there was a thought that maybe just crossing this into commercial lines, and this was about 50 or 60 years ago, would be a great idea. Well, some of those wonderful characteristics that this line has, uh, which helped it to be self-sufficient uh, when it was a village chicken, just did not work very well in commercial uh, production. Uh, it uh, It's a I'll call it a very assertive uh, bird, and and well, you can imagine uh, what that means. So <laughs> yeah. it, it just didn't match up very well with uh, uh, crossing it to commercial lines and using it for uh, for production there. But in terms of our ability to use it for foundational research and really understand the basis of genetic control of important traits, uh, especially. Uh, the pathogen resistance and heat stress. We've also looked at them a lot for resistance to heat. And again, as you might imagine, uh, they are very heat resilient. Uh, and that's allowed us to, uh, to pinpoint location of some of the important genetic regions that are controlling these traits. Another thing that we have in our, our set uh, of uh, genetic lines are lines that are uh, what we call congenic for a set of genes called the MHC for major histocompatibility complex, uh, a region that's really rich in genes that control immune response. And by having lines that are completely identical in their genetic background and differ only with that one set of genes allows us to ask a really specific question, which is, does the genetic control relate to the differences in this one set of genes, the major histocompatibility complex. And then I'll just wrap up with the, the, one of the lines that I've developed since the time I've been here uh, with kind of a different genetic structure than the ones I've described. The other ones are all highly inbred. That is a wonderful starting point for uh, investigations about genetic control because they're really consistent within the line. We have another line where uh, we crossed the Fayumi, uh, again, disease-resistant and heat-tolerant, uh, with a broiler breeder line. Uh, these are now, that's a very wide cross, uh, very different in size, uh, very different in many uh, characteristics, and that creates what we call a mapping population uh, because we started with two founder lines that are very different in their physiology and their genetics, that's a great uh, research tool 
for us to identify, again, where the genetic control is. And that's, that's allowed us to pinpoint some interesting uh, variations in the genetics uh, that we're continuing to follow up, things that we think will be very uh, important for the industry, uh, one of those being uh, a particular region that uh, has allowed the birds to accumulate muscle mass very well under heat stress, uh, which is usually a, a pretty challenging environment uh, for birds to grow well. Yeah, but increasingly important um, based on where chickens are being grown in the U.S., especially, you know, in the South and environmental control can go really far. But at some point, the bird can help themselves if they've got some different traits. That's right. That's right. And that, that's what we hope to do. You know, genetic improvements are uh, permanent uh, and that can be uh, combined with many other different ways uh, such as management and feed uh, to help alleviate uh, some stresses that they undergo. So I have, I have a basic question, but I, I'm thinking some people might be wondering the same. Um, in, in the most basic way, can you kind of describe the how you maintain these lines for 100 years and you don't completely get some sort of genetic drift or a bird with not the right number of body parts or, you know, the, the inability to reproduce because they've been... Uh, maintained in a closed population for that long? That's, that's a great question. Uh, and uh, th- there are certainly different factors that are involved in that. And one is that originally uh, the people originating these lines, and as I said, I was fortunate to inherit uh, those wonderful genetic resources. Uh, they started out with a lot more than the number of lines we have today because, <laughs> because some of them yeah. indeed will not be viable. Uh, you know, one of the things that can be uh, most uh, challenging uh, for maintaining inbred lines is that uh, as they become more and more closely related, if there are any recessive or sort of hidden genes that are deleterious uh, to the birds, uh, the, the closer the breeding the more uh, the frequencies of those can occur uh, and the lines may die out uh, because of that. Uh, And while I say we don't really select these birds for anything special, that's not true because we always have to be selecting them for reproductive ability. Uh, So, uh, you know, every every generation, uh, we need to look at which pairs are reproducing well uh, and producing uh, the highest number of viable chicks and then use those for the parents in future generations. So there is that selection for uh, for reproduction in these birds. Uh, and we do, we also look at them uh, genetically. So you, you talked about drift, and that's an important uh, issue to look at. Uh, so we look at not only drift over time, but we can also look at how similar are the birds within each one of the lines. Uh, and, and generally, the, the, the answer to that question is 99 plus percent uh, is shared DNA. Uh, but of course, mutations happen. Uh, and those can also be detected in there. That happens in, in every single uh, reproductive organism is that there'll be some mutations from one generation to the next. So would you say because of the selection over time, um, the birds largely do resemble their predecessors? I mean, I know at other times when we're selecting for a particular trait, they can get larger over time, but these truly should resemble or be darn close, right, to the original parent stock. <laughs> they they right? are, you know, as far as we ha- as far as we have records, uh, you know, we know that the um, uh, the feather color and many of these uh, have uh, colored feathers, as was more typical at the times that these lines were started or the origin that they came from. Uh, they've maintained that uh, body size has stayed pretty consistent. Uh, that that one uh, crossed line that I talked about uh, used a broiler from a few decades ago, and of course broilers have greatly increased in size, so it's not not similar to what today's commercial birds would be, uh, but it's quite similar to what it was at the time that it was sourced from the commercial population. That yeah, that's it, it's just crazy to me because I it's a little slice of history because. Even since I've started doing work, and and I'm sure since you've started working with the poultry industry, the birds are completely different. <laughs> they, they have they have changed a lot. They have changed a lot, and so I always think of the work that we do with these uh, genetic lines as being the first stage uh, in research. Uh, we can use them because with that. Uh, 
the inbreeding. They have that very consistent genetics and they're quite distinct from each other. So that's our first step. If we find something that looks promising there uh, from a scientific viewpoint, uh, then is the right time for me to converse with uh, the poultry genetics companies, uh, share with them what this fundamental research looks like. And then there's the opportunity, if there's interest, to uh, determine whether some of those variations also exist in commercial lines. Uh, They may be there, but they may not have been something that had been uh, especially examined, uh, you know, earlier in their programs as they were focusing on, on other traits. Uh, but that gives us a starting point uh, to say this could be interesting. Uh, let's look at it in, in the commercial birds, find out if indeed it, that same vari- variation in genetics exists there. And if so, does it show that same good association? Uh, that we were able to identify uh, in the experimental line. So uh, it's always a a multi-step type of research investigation to go from the fundamental to the point at which the genetics companies can apply this within the context of their own uh, breeding programs. But that's always the goal. Uh, We we want to determine fundamental information, which is going to be useful in the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, has there been anything along your career that you've found that has turned out to be something that the companies were interested in and then they could begin to select for to improve bird health or production or any of those different goals? There, there, there have been. And of course, uh, realize that the companies need to keep that information and how they use it oh. you know, within the context <laughs> yeah. of their own programs. Uh, I respect that. Uh, I have always felt very privileged when I've had the opportunity to work along with them uh, in order to uh, you know, identify ways to translate the, the scientific work that we're doing uh, at, at Iowa State into practical applications for them. So uh, that that is, is something that I've been very proud of and things related to genetic improvement, especially in health traits, uh, have been things that have been adapted in, in some of the various genetics companies. Yeah. Oh, that, that's really cool to see your work put into action. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, um, so with some of the, the production settings and the way that we're changing the housing setting, how important do you think this work, this work could even be more important because we've got resurgence of diseases just because of the access to litter and some others. Yes, yes. I, w- I would, I would love to start my career again, uh, kind of pre- press, the re- press the reset button and I'd probably spend a lot more time with parasitology uh, be- because it, as we think about the uh, the good reasons that have been used for different management and housing settings, uh, you know, we were looking at protecting the birds from exposure uh, to pathogens and to uh, uncontrolled environmental uh, insults. And as there has been, you know, consumer interest in changing uh, some of the housing for birds, we're now again dealing with some things that probably for 50 years, the birds did not have a lot of exposure to. Uh, and so that, that means that, uh, yeah, I, I always try to look at the optimistic part of it. It means that there's a great new, uh, research direction, uh, that can be taken, which is now to go back to some of those challenges to production that didn't exist much over the past few decades, uh, you know, that are now coming into play again with the changes in housing and management with the birds. Uh, we need we need to think about a few different things that they need to be quite you know either resistant to, tolerant of, or resilient uh, when they they're exposed to it. Yeah. Um, so how how does how do you translate your work to a genetics company that operates globally? That's kind of another interesting point. The bird has got to perform in different environments. So it does. It man. Does. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, it does. So uh, one, of, one of the important concepts there is to, uh, you know, distinguish between really specific responses on one hand, uh, and those are the easier ones to identify maybe because they're more clear cut, and that general robustness or resilience that really needs to be in place for the animals to perform well over a wide variety of environmental conditions. And that has certainly become much more of an important focus uh, recently 
breeding companies are really addressing that and, and researchers also uh, as they're thinking about, you know, what, what should we study? What should we get a better understanding of? Uh, there's, there's much more focus recently on that general adaptability or, you know, that, that resilience over a wide variety of different kinds of environmental insults, whether they're disease or suboptimal feed or poor environment. Uh, and so adaptability uh, over a wide range is, is a really important thing, more than trying to name one particular condition or disease uh, to focus on. So from my very meager understanding of genetics, that was definitely not my strong point in school. <laughs> so I, I leave it up to people that understand it better. Um, when, we're, when we're talking about preserving production traits and then maybe also altering a health trait, have you found some production and health traits that were at odds? Like if you wanted to increase immunity or just as a general term or something else that it really impacted production, like how do you balance those? Yeah, balance is a, a really important issue. Uh, and I, sometimes I think about the immune system like an insurance policy. You know, if you, if you keep, if you keep paying those premiums, but you never need to use it, you wonder like, well, why did I bother? Uh, that seemed like an investment (laughs) that I didn't get any payback on, but the moment that you need it, uh, then it was well worth the investment put into it. Uh, so there, there have certainly been a wide variety of, um, answers to the question of uh, whether the immune system improvements have decreased production traits or vice versa. Uh, and I think a key there is the allocation of resources. Uh, there's a, a limited number of resources that every individual bird has available to it, uh, and it is going to have to use those uh, for survival first and then everything else. Uh, and so there are appropriate times and conditions under which survival ought to take precedent over growth or production. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that we're trying to look at a lot for the immune function is the, uh, the innate or the earliest uh, functions that go on for the immune system. Uh, because those are the ones that are more general, more broad, uh, help control infections earlier upon exposure. Uh, and we think that that may be a very uh, helpful approach uh, to look at those earliest phases uh, to, to get an infection under control uh, early on. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Have you, since you've, you've got some lines that are more broiler heritage, if you will, or more focused on meat production, and then those that are focused more on egg. Have you found any major different lines within the lines that you're working on? Um, I know anecdotally, and there are, is experimental evidence, at least experimentally in broilers versus our current layers, that there are some differences, but are you finding those in these heritage lines, or is that something that has gone along with selection? Well, we've found some very uh, I'd say interesting signatures in especially the oldest lines uh, that their immune system is in general more capable uh, than that of some of the more recent lines. Uh, but of course, you know, immune function is really complex. So depending on which which uh, specific part one is focusing on, uh, the answers could be a little bit different. Uh, but I'd say as a, a general characterization, uh, you know, a, a bit more rapid response is often what we see. Uh, and that, that in itself may be enough to, you know, get an infection under control and therefore not have to use quite as much, uh, you know, energy and other resources if it can be done quickly. So, and, and that, you know, of course, the... Uh, commercial selection, uh, which has been very, very successful for the, the major economic traits, uh, you know, early on uh, may have overemphasized those traits. Uh, breeding companies are very aware and very much addressing uh, those issues of bringing more balance uh, back into the birds uh, so that all of those supporting systems uh, like uh, the, the, the lungs, the bones, the immune system, etc., uh, are, 
able to support either the growth or the pro- egg production in those birds. Yeah, that, that's that's cool to hear. It, sometimes it seems like the when we say the breeding companies because the poultry genetics companies are so different than any other livestock species. You know, you've got a, a core group of people making decisions and producing birds versus. Um, you know, anyone can, if you've got the land and the space and the know-how, you can breed cattle or you can breed sheep, you know, it's, it's just, <clears throat> it's that's the right. wild west. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. You know, there, there are, uh, there are relatively few, few companies, you know, and they're virtually all multinational, uh, but they do keep a lot of different product lines within each one of them. So that does ensure a, a major amount of genetic diversity being able to be held there. Uh, it's also a safety net to have them uh, all over the world uh, in, in case there's a disease outbreak or other issues in particular areas. So from, from a genetic standpoint, how many core individuals do you need really to to make a decision or, or keep a certain trait or a line going? Um, I know in talking to other people outside of poultry, like you know those in, in zoos who have a very small amount of animals that they can, you know, combine and they say they find enough diversity with as, you know, as little as six to eight members of a species. So how, how many core individuals do you need to basically kind of change a trait for the better? Um, Or if something really drastic happens, how can you get back? (laughs) I know you can't go backwards, but you know, what, what do you, what do you really need to change the, the course of a bird's genetics? Okay. Okay. Uh, so by number of individuals, you, you don't yeah, mean the, birds, the geneticists, yeah. you mean the birds themselves. <laughs> okay. one, you just need one guy and one decision. <laughs> we, in genetics, we would call that, you know, the number of effective breeders, you know, how, how many animals to reproduce, you know, future yes. generations uh, do we need? And uh, it, it's a balance. Uh, between a couple of different things. And one is having that amount of genetic diversity that you want uh, to have choices, to have variation. Uh, And balancing that with uh, the fact that if one is more stringent with selection, say only taking, you know, the the top two animals instead of the top uh, 200 animals, uh, the progress is going to be a bit slower because you're not being as stringent in selecting the best. And then uh, uh, certainly a third thing that I think is incredibly important is how many different traits do you want to change uh, simultaneously? So the, the more traits you put in there, you know, each one may have genetic diversity related to it that is independent of the diversity that controls a different uh, one of the traits that you're interested in improving. So uh, the, a really wonderful feature uh, of poultry is that they are, you know, globally the most numerous livestock that exist. Uh, So as mutations occur, uh, you know, they can be detected, they can be used. Uh, And remember, mutation is not a bad thing. You know, that's how we, that's one of the ways that we get changes and improvements in any species. Uh, is those mutations that occur over time. So when you have lots of individuals, you have more opportunities to get that genetic variation uh, built in. So the the answer to your question is that it will vary depending on the breeding goals and the type of bird uh, in terms of how many individuals you need to work with. Uh, Certainly in most lines, you need dozens to hundreds uh, as the effective number of breeders. Uh, and likely more than that uh, as a safeguard. And and remember that the, you know, poultry are, uh, I'm going to use visuals, they're uh, they're a pyramid, uh, and there are multiple generations between the uh, level at which the selection and improvement is being made and the commercial birds. Uh, And that allows one other way to bring variation in, which is to have distinctly different grandparents, uh, where you might emphasize some physiological traits in some grandparent lines and a different trait in the other lines. And then uh, the, the different combinations can also be tested to determine which ones generate the most productive commercial offspring. Uh, so it's, it's quite common that there will be uh, three or likely four quite distinctly different lines that are contributing uh, to the commercial bird itself. 
So, so when you're talking about the the populations of birds that contribute to these pier lines, and then they get they get bred to make uh, eventually the production bird. Um, you you've got a completely different set of birds that are used for fundamental or foundational research, and then I'll say we've got. We've got birds in different parts of the world that are just totally, I'm going to say random bread. It may not be the right word, but they're just, they're, they're living in villages and they're, you know, the people are keeping them. <laughs> so there might, they might be local. So how important are those three different populations? I mean, we need them for different reasons, right? We've got the birds providing food. We've got birds providing information. And then we've got maybe these random birds that could be helpful for genetic diversity at some, at some random point, right? <laughs> Right, right. I think that's one of the th- reasons that poultry are so wonderful, is that they really exist in different structures and different types of populations that are appropriate for the setting that they're in. Uh, so in the United States, we can provide uh, good housing, optimal feeding, you know, environmental control. Uh, and, and that's a that's an appropriate environment in which to have the large-scale commercial production. And, and there are many parts of the world in which that, that fits very, very well. Uh, and then, you know, we've already, you know, talked a bit about the way the, the research lines help, you know, underpin a greater understanding of uh, different traits uh, in the birds and how to improve those. But we have parts of the world that don't have the resources or the inputs uh, to, to give. They may not have uh, you know, a feeding program at all. They, they may not have access to feedstuffs or vaccines or the ability to provide a good uh, environmentally controlled and protected uh, housing and environment for their birds. Uh, and so there, you know, in those settings, uh, the types of birds are really needed that are very uh, very hardy, uh, able to live under those suboptimal conditions, uh, and in, in you know in that case the you know the relatively random mating uh, that that occurs in the setting of say the the village chickens uh, allows natural selection to go on. Uh, so these these populations will get exposure to disease. You know, they will have to deal with their suboptimal feeding and the uh, the harsh environments that they're in. Uh, unfortunately, what that means is that there's often uh, a, a large loss uh, to mortality or illness in there. So that that actually has uh, uh, been the uh, the aim to improve some of those local types of birds of a project that I've been involved with for about the past 10 years. Uh, it, it's le- yeah, it, it's led uh, out of uh, University of California, Davis, by one of my former students, so uh, ISU alumni. Uh, and at Iowa State, uh, Dr. Deckers and I are involved. And then we have two partner universities in Africa where we are uh looking at their local types of birds, and I won't even call them breeds because they they sort of have, in some instances, kind of, you know, random mixtures uh, of the birds. But uh, we're, we're trying to, you know, use the current genetics tools to understand the variation those birds might have so we could improve uh, resistance to disease and production simultaneously in those birds. Because, um, you know, they, they have this history of being uh, in those places with some natural selection and culturally they're very desirable uh, in, in those countries. Uh, and so we think there's an opportunity there uh, there are also, again, poultry is very scalable, everything from backyards to, you know, hundreds of thousands of birds on a, on a facility, uh, de- depending on what's appropriate uh, for, the, for the different markets. Oh, yeah. I think that's one of the coolest things about birds is <laughs> their flexibility. Exactly, even, exactly. Yeah, even commercially, sometimes we, you know, we get things wrong and they power through it. <laughs> Um, so, so with your, with your work in like the, the suboptimal versus maybe the more optimal settings, um, I get very uncomfortable when we change too many things at once with my own research. Cause I can't, <laughs> I can't really decide what the answer was. So how, when you're changing several variables at once from a genetic standpoint, um, how do you determine what worked, and I'm just using air quotes for worked, but how do you, how do you know what's, what's better if you decide to change a few things at once? Okay. Um, 
if if you're changing a few things simultaneously, it may be very difficult to separate those from each other. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, we 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 do have statistical techniques, so we can associate, uh, you know, particular things that we measure if it's egg production or or heat resilience with where the genetic control is. Uh, you know, if if we can measure it you know, we can find the genetics that are associated with it. But if we're changing a lot of things simultaneously, that that's a much more complex uh, question to try to get a clean answer to. So we, we often start with one thing at a time, if possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I just have the idea that you want to change one thing, but somehow other things are coming along for the ride. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Genetic improvement. Does happen. <laughs> and that, you know, that brings it closer, you know, that type of study brings it closer to a field application. Uh, more complex setting, uh, but the information coming from it, while perhaps not as clear, uh, is going to be very relevant for application. Oh, yeah. Has, have there been anything in this field work or some of the other um, selection work that you've done that has just been completely surprising that kind of changed maybe a paradigm or a way that you a research direction or anything like that? That's a great question. Uh, I'd say one of the things that surprised us very much, uh, and I, I talked about our, our studies on the lines where we crossed together the broilers and the feumies. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the broilers are eight to 10 times the size of the feumies, uh, <laughs> you know, at the ages yeah. that we're working with them. At, and we wanted to see, you know, uh, you know, what, kind of uh, growth rates they had under heat stress, under a, a, a pretty, uh, pretty severe but controlled heat stress. Uh, and what we found was that the genetic variation that contributed to the ability to really put on a significant breast muscle uh, in, in the, the birds from that cross came from those tiny little feumies. So the, wow. the Fayumis were the source. Yeah, they were the source of the genetic variants, or we'd call them alleles, that allowed the birds to continue to put on breast muscle under the hot conditions. That's so that, that was just a, yeah, yeah. So, it's, so we call that in genetics a, a hidden or a cryptic allele. Uh, so yeah. the, the variation was hidden where we wouldn't expect it. And that to me was just a great example of uh, why looking at, uh, you know, very diverse populations and ones different than commercial lines may still give us some really important information. Yeah, because they're not, they're petite little birds compared to the broiler. That's right. That's right. But they, they're the ones that, that have some genetic variation that allows the growth to continue under heat stress. Yeah, that, that is, that is really cool. <laughs> I'm glad, glad you pursued that work because sometimes when you talk about how do you get money to pursue these ideas that are just an idea, you don't have preliminary data, man, I'm glad, I'm really glad you pursued that because that's a cool outcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yes. Yeah. It kind of popped out at us and, and actually the, the work is, uh, you know, still continuing to try to, you know, pinpoint even more finely exactly what the changes and differences are. Uh, that contribute to that, uh, because now we also have a lot of different ways to uh, to understand genetics better, uh, in, and to to manipulate uh, the genetics in in ways that may be very beneficial. So I know as we we change birds over time, it's for whatever purpose or whatever setting that we're putting an emphasis on. Um, there's no way really to to go back to a previous line unless you've got some individuals saved. So what what's happening right now in terms of um, genetic preservation? Um, I know that it's actually not easy really to freeze uh, rooster semen, for example. So how, you know, with these different populations around the world that are important breeding populations, what what's going on right now to, to preserve some of the genetic integrity in, in the case of something catastrophic like uh, avian influenza? I mean, we've had that around recently. 
That's right. Uh, that's that's a great question, and especially for people in poultry genetics, that's one thing that's always on our minds. Uh, you know, the the potential of a, a catastrophic loss. So, over time, different technologies have been developed uh, to help preserve uh, the the gametes uh, from the birds, and it started relatively simply, as as you mentioned, uh, with the semen and. Uh, there are a lot of unique biological characteristics, apparently, uh, in in birds, both both for the semen and for the uh, the eggs or the ova, that make it kind of challenging. So uh, there have been programs that have uh, saved back uh, very large semen collections uh, from the different genetic lines around the world, but now uh, what has been uh, probably the more a contemporary way is to uh, save back, in some cases, the, the the gonads themselves, which have in them the cells which can uh, generate uh, the the sex cells for the future. Uh, and so that has been a technique that's used. And birds also have what we call primordial germ cells, which for a short time go into their blood circulation. Uh, can also be harvested from there. Uh, and because they're primordial, uh, they can go on to develop uh, in, into many different cell types. So uh, things have been expanding uh, rapidly, but you are absolutely correct that it is a much more challenging uh, type of option <laughs> in uh, birds than it is in uh, many other uh, species to work with. So uh, globally, a lot of folks working on this because that, that issue is really important. How do we preserve uh, biodiversity over time in a way that will allow us to efficiently uh, bring it back to life uh, as it's needed? Oh, well, we've, I think we've had a really great conversation. Is there, is there anything else that you'd like to highlight or emphasize uh, for anyone listening before we go to our final three questions? So uh, I, I just have to give a big thanks to all the people that I have worked with, particularly the students and postdocs and trainees, because I, I get to talk about that, that cool work, but everybody that's been engaged with it has really been the, the secret of that success. So shout, shout out to them. <laughs> You've had some incredible people through your lab and still do right now. So I always enjoy collaborating with your group. <laughs> great, great. Thank you. I yeah. enjoy it too. It's time for our famous three. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Ivonic. We are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable ways. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. Natural Biologics is using cutting-edge science to dig deeper into the poultry health challenges you face. By gathering scientific evidence, they identify the most effective combinations of natural ingredients that improve animal health. Visit naturalbiologics.com poultry to see the newest research in both turkeys and chickens. So to, to wrap up the podcast today, I'd like to ask you the three questions that we ask everybody. And the first one is, what is your favorite poultry-related book or resource? I have to answer with, I have to give two answers because my career has always been at the intersection of two different areas, the genetics and the immunology. Uh, so I, I really go back frequently to the most recent and sometimes even the prior versions uh, of our avian immunology texts 
which are just, you know, great resources and always a starting point. If somebody comes in with a question, I'll go like, here, read this. <laughs> uh, so, it, and there are those for both the avian immunology area, you know, compiled by, uh, you know, authors from all over the world, usually doing, doing different chapters in there. I usually have a chapter mm-hmm. in there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, and, and usually it's like genetics of immunology. Uh, and then in We have the same, uh, you know, series of really excellent books in poultry genetics and biotechnology. Uh, And there I also usually have a chapter in there. It's usually genetics of immunology. (laughs) Uh, So we just flip it around for those those two. Uh, But uh, those are great resources because they bring together really the kind of the best minds all around the world uh, to put those resources together for people. Yeah, oh, I, I love that it's uh, it, it's easy to find all the information, and I love the book version. I, I'm not into the PDFs. I'm all about the paperback or the hardcover. <laughs> I, yeah. I I do like having real pages in my hands sometimes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the the second question is is what is a non poultry book or resource that that's a favorite of that you've read recently? Yeah. Um... So I'm not going to remember the author, uh, but one of the things that that I enjoy a great deal is reading biographies or even multiple biographies of individuals. Uh, so my latest is Winston Churchill. Uh, you know, really interesting person, and you just you know I I use that to try to understand, you know, why was this person so impactful? You know, how did they come to decisions? You know, was it just a fluke of where they were in history? Uh, or, you know, you know, something that gives me uh, an insight into their mind and their way of, of making decisions, I find really fascinating. And, and over, over the years, I've, I've done that for lots and lots of different people that I considered successful to some extent in their lives. Yeah, yeah well, that's cool. I, I love reading biographies, autobiographies, yeah, real, real stories. I think that's the scientist in me and not too much into fiction. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, so the, the last question today is how or, or what sort of advice would you suggest for someone to be successful in the poultry industry? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I would like them to have a passion for the birds. You know, they really have to appreciate these, these animals as individuals and populations and the role that they have uh, in supporting humanity. Uh, and other things that I, I think of, and these may be really keys to success no matter where you are, uh, but integrity and curiosity uh, and a combination of those, you know, bringing those to the job, uh, I think really allows people to, to, to move into leadership, to be successful, uh, you know, to really accomplish things and be someone that, that others respect uh, because of what they do. I think that's great advice. <laughs> like loving the bird is always first, right? Because there's days when your job is hard, but if you if you like what you're doing at the core, you always have a mission, right? <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. This has been really fun to chat with you, especially about some of the more uh, in-depth gen- genetic or molecular mechanisms that have really changed over time. So thank you so much. Oh, I was very happy to do it. Thank you.